If you think one set of dice is enough, then you might be playing it wrong. Hello, hello, hello! It's episode 17, season 2 of Playing It Wrong. I'm doing my seasons based on the calendar year. Alright, this is going to be a fun-filled and busy episode. The last one was short, but this one ain't going to be, because we got lots and lots of stuff going on. First up, let's talk about some Kickstarters. And the first thing I want to say is, old school is not dead despite what some people say. Gavin Norman of Necrotic Gnome just finished up the Old School's Essentials Kickstarter today with just under 3,000 backers and just over $180,000. So if that's for a dead gaming movement, yeah, no, no, no. Old School is still alive and well. And speaking of old school, let's move right along to a Kickstarter that's going on right now. That's the Far Away Land Old School Kickstarter, based on Swords and Wizardry Continual Light, I believe. And, well, yeah, I backed it. I'm not going to say back a Kickstarter unless I throw my own money at it. But Far Away Land, it's weird, it's quirky, it's different. And now it's for a set of rules that you know, more people are used to. Now, the original rules are cool. I've got those, too. I've got the PDFs of the Tome of Awesome. And... You know, it's its own system. It's a good system. It's D6 based, but this one puts it into what more people are used to. <clears throat> so, if you're looking for something a little weird, a little different, but not edgelordy, then check out Faraway Land, the old school version. There's going to be links in the show notes. Don't worry, or you can just use the Googles. And there's another Kickstarter that I'm excited about, and that's from other none other than John Marr of Purple Sorcerer Games. Yes, it's for Dungeon Crawl Classics, but it doesn't matter. I'll explain that in a second. This Kickstarter is for Crypt in Cadaver Canyon and more. So there's lots of side things, and, well, stretch goals are being unlocked. Now, let's get this. If you don't know about Purple Sorcerer, then you probably don't play Dungeon Crawl Classics. <clears throat> they made a wonderful app and have a wonderful site for all sorts of neat tools for Dungeon Crawl Classics. But you're saying, hey, dummy, I don't play Dungeon Crawl Classics. Oh, it doesn't matter. Fine. Yes, these are for Dungeon Crawl Classics. Big deal. Guess what? If you're playing an old-school game, it is really easy to convert the Dungeon Crawl Classic stuffs on the fly. Grab one of the quick starts. I think the beta rules is still available for free on PDF. Grab those, get an understanding of the system, and most of it you can convert on the fly while you're gaming. And i got to say, Purple Sorcerer puts out great adventures and also Goodman Games. Awesome adventures. Even if you don't play DCC, Pick some of those up for your regular old school game. They work, they're fun, they're interesting, they're different, and not that hard to convert, so don't freak out. And that, dear listener, wraps up my Kickstarter rant and my shilling other people's stuff. Oh, wait, I'm not done shilling other people's stuff. I promised I was going to do a review of Skeeter Green's Crypt of the Science Wizard. Because, hey, that's another Kickstarter I backed because, well... You had me at Science Wizard. So, what is Crypt of the Science Wizard? Well, it's an adventure. Duh. Okay. So, what makes it interesting? Well, what makes it interesting is it goes with that old trope of, you know, any, you know, advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And that's the case here because there's lots of sciencey things and lots of things that may look like, oh, familiar creatures that will kind of dishearten your cleric when they try to turn them, if you know what I mean. Because it's science, not necromancy. I'm going to do this without spoilers, so uh, some of the details are going to be a bit hazy. But I'm going to talk about what I like, and well, there's not too much I dislike about it. Now, the first thing I want to say is I did get the Swords and Wizardry version, because, as I've said in the blog and I've said here, it's easy for me to convert things from Swords and Wizardry or to Swords and Wizardry. So even if I run this with 5e, 
I can convert it on the fly with my own quick and dirty method, which, hey, pay attention to the blog. I talk about it there occasionally. So the setup is kind of pretty standard. The player characters are going in, and they're looting an ancient crypt. Okay. It's not rocket science, but hey. It's a hook that works. Money and treasure and magic items always will get player characters motivated. Now there's a little bit of a challenge actually getting into the place. Like I said, no spoilers. And depending on your party, they may or may not need to be kind of led by the nose and pushed in the right direction without before you know, so they don't kill themselves before they can get into the dungeon. And speaking of the dungeon, um, how do I put this? Um you're gonna need a thief. That's all the way is to it. You're gonna need a thief. If you ain't got a thief, they're gonna die. Because there are plenty of traps and there's some cool and devious traps that I would dare say um <coughs> would do honor to Grimtooth. There really isn't a heavy plot or anything, but it's very much a dungeon crawl that well, if the player characters are stupid, they will die. And it's the dungeon that will kill them from well basically traps. And some of them aren't even really traps that are made, but traps that just time and circumstance has created. So as a DM you might have to do some adjudication of do I find a trap? Well, yeah, maybe you do it's not really a trap that someone made. It's just the circumstances created the situation that would be dare dangerous if you did a certain thing. Like walk. So you know that's 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 the first part of the dungeon. The first part of the dungeon is pretty trap heavy. Once they get into the meat of it, then, and they start facing actual monsters and a lot of new monsters, which I'm not going to go into because I really think they're neat. Because I don't, like I said, no spoilers, but I think some of the monsters are really neat in a way that makes them familiar but different because they're not magic. They're ultra science or super science. I love saying that. Super science. Okay. While the dungeon itself is pretty small, and I know I'm bouncing around, but I do these things impromptu. <coughs> so get over it. All right. Anyway, but the, the dungeon itself is pretty small. But it is the gateway to what Skeeter's doing for a larger dungeon, possibly a mega dungeon, and a larger campaign setting. So what are you going to do with this? Should you buy this? Well, if you want or have a place in your campaign world that's just kind of a post-apocalyptic elliptic thunder type area i'd say this would be a cool dungeon to throw in there or some place where there's some type of history where or possibly the future hey it's D, &D. you can make all time and continuity don't freaking matter <coughs> you can throw this in there if you want to keep it straight everything's magic and there's no ultra science period, period eh, no not really i mean you could just reskin it back to standard and it'd be kind of a standard dungeon but why? <laughs> All right, now I'm going to bounce around here a little bit because I'm looking at the PDF. I haven't got my hard copy in the mail yet, but I totally forgot a very neat thing Skeeter did. Now, if you have to go back to your old AD&D modules, remember module C1, the hidden shrine of, oh God, how do you pronounce this? Tamachawan. Tamachawan. It's the kind of the Aztec-inspired one. One of the things in that module was that nice little sort of bits where there was actual artwork of what the player characters saw to kind of give that little extra immersion and possibly puzzle solving by looking at the pictures. Yeah, Skeeter Dunn did that too. That is a cool little addition to a module and it's something that I wish more people would do because there's lots of great artwork which in a lot of adventures that's evocative but it's not actually useful. 
while these little these drawings are useful to use DM to instead of describe, just show it to them and let them make their own assumptions. I don't know how many times I've described something and something that's supposed to be totally innocuous they'll focus on and focus on and focus on or well you didn't say that okay well okay fine I don't have to say it you just look at the damn picture okay make your own decisions kill your own characters so as being Skeeter's inaugural solo product I kind of like it I kind of I, I like the way the way it's headed that it's not quite standard D&D &D, but it's kind of its own thing and he's definitely putting his own spin on things especially in a greater world that he's creating with this and especially like I said that artwork on the back of show the picture to the player of what the room looks like I look in the door what do I see you see this that is pure awesomeness and it's a simple bit of genius that does go back to the old gaze that you don't see that often anymore which I don't know I have no idea why more people who create high quality modules okay I'm a one-man show I rarely write modules but why high quality module creators don't spend more time on something as simple as here's actually what you see it's a useful tool at the table so listen to this little podcaster nobody that's right anyway good job Skeeter and hey many more in the future I hope so man and hey thanks for all the stuff on Swords of Jordoba Swords of Jordoba oh speaking of which I do have to do a shout out and apology to Skeeter this goes to Matt Finch's patreon I'll put a link there too of the early episodes of Swords Swords of Jordoba for the longest time I kept getting Shane and Skeeter mixed up because Shane sounds like a guy whose name should be Skeeter. So, sorry, Skeeter. And I know this is going to be a real long episode because I'm still going on. And guess what? Now we're in for my gaming philosophy corner. Oh, what is this about? This I'm going to rant about here as choosing your next game. Because I'm kind of in this, this quandary. I know what I want to run next for after. Because I'm doing Labyrinth Lord now. And I really want to do um, Dark Streets and Darker Secrets by Old School Publishing and revamp my, an old uh, urban fantasy campaign that I had done. But the other GM in the group wants to run the old world of darkness, the old new world of darkness, technically, Scion. And I don't know, I just think they're kind of too close together. So I had to do some, and do some thinking of what else do I want to run, which gets me to this point of how do I choose the next game and how do I choose what system to use? So I kind of went down a since I was kind of in this urban fantasy type mood, I kind of went down the horror hole and realized there aren't that many good horror RPGs out there, in my opinion. Not that many. Now, I've got some. I've got the original um, Stalking the Night Fantastic, you know, the Bureau 13. I've got the original one. Old game. I've got Beyond the Supernatural from Palladium, which is, well, it's Palladium. What else can I say? I've also got uh, My Call of Cthulhu, the second edition. I've played the most recent edition, and I like the older one better because it's less clunky. And, you know, I wouldn't say clunky. There's no flowchart of how you die, and also the character generation is quicker. And one of my key philosophies to any game is character generation time should be inversely proportional to character life expectancy. Excuse me. So the faster the die, the quicker you should be able to generate them. 
you know, I looked at my Savage Worlds books, and then I know I haven't looked at them, but I know they're someplace, either in the garage or in the closet, still in their original box, by the way, which is seen bitter days, but I've still got Chill, which, all right, and see, I have to be careful because that's one of the dog's names. But anyway, Chill is probably one of the best generic horror RPGs out there. I'm talking about the original one. I haven't seen the second or third or the current editions, but the original one was really much fun. I enjoyed it. But here's one of the, I'm going for the philosophy of choosing your next game. I know this is a good game. I know it'll be fun to play, but there's a problem. I have one player who just sucks at math. I mean, just last week, we're playing 5e. How much damage you do? Rolls a 7. Okay. 7 plus 5. Okay, I did 11. Dude, no. And it took him like 30 seconds to figure that out. So if you remember the old chill system, the old pace setter system, it was percentile based on a margin of success on a percentile rule with much larger numbers than single digits. So we could be there all night for this guy doing math, which I don't want to do. And another thing I also wanted to do on this is not do a D20 base because I've got plenty of D20 stuff and I know there's plenty of D20 stuff out there, but I want to do something that wasn't D20. So right now I'm leaning more towards as a backup in my pocket, Call of Cthulhu because well, I've got the Horror Companion, I've got East Texas University. Savage Worlds just doesn't do good horror, in my opinion. It can do good pulpy horror, you know, more Buffy-esque, but not, oh my god, we're going to die or go insane, even though I do have Realms of Cthulhu, too. So it just it doesn't end generating and leveling up characters. It's a bit slow for the people who don't really know Savage Worlds that well. Going old Call of Cthulhu, going to tweak it with a little bit from um, Mithras and Imperative and Open Quest, and just make things a little simpler and see where that ends up as a possibility for uh, what to run. So that's that was kind of my philosophy in going through all that. So the idea is one: just because you like a game doesn't mean your one your players can play it or want to play it. Two: you've got to choose. Okay. How do you want the game to feel? Much of it, let's call it player psychology. If, especially if you're doing a D20, if you're moving from standard D&D to horror, there's still going to be that D&D mentality despite, because of the rules are the same. Even possibly subconsciously, the players are still going to kind of think they're playing D&D, which won't work. Uh, they'll die ho more horribly and quicker and they'll do things that are more uh, just D&D-esque. Of course, this is all my opinion. Your mileage may vary. I don't know. And of course, you have to go for your own taste as a GM. You know, because like I said, I've played the latest edition of Call of Cthulhu, and it kind of felt just clunkier than the old edition. And the old edition, I mean, literally, I, I really didn't like that flow chart they had in the rule book of figuring out if you're dead or not, which in the old one was, you're at zero, you're dead. That, that, that's the flow chart. Zero equals dead. And there's no absolute no reason, because it's even got in the back, the more traditional monsters that you can weave into a mythos campaign to make things, well, to make a horrible world for your player characters to be in. And it, so that, that's where I'm sitting. So. so, dear listeners, let us move on to readings from the Little Brown Book, because this episode is already topping out at over 15 minutes. All right, we are still on Volume 2, Monsters and Treasure. And this is a special episode. It's going to be so long because guess what? 
I saved this part just about dragons, because that's how far we've gotten into the book. It's We're on page 11. Wow. Dragons. All right, little brown books. There are six varieties of dragons. That's it, just six. Each with separate characteristics in particular and other things in common, which is a really bad sentence, but hey, little brown books are full of that. So what do we got? We got white, black, green, blue, red, gold. With gold, acid, chlorine gas, lightning, fire, and fire or gas. And then we have cones and lines like before. And the range of hit dice, which is... You know, so there were no wormlings or babies, because, like, the lowest one is a 5-hit die white dragon, and the highest is a 12-hit die gold dragon. It just varies by the time of the queens. But also you have percentage chances of talking, I guess if it actually has to talk, or if you run across it, sleeping. All right, dragons. We have breath weapons. Dragons breathe fire. Well, some of them do. You know that. Okay, three times per day. So, sometimes it will bite instead. A roll two six-sided dice at a score of six or less indicates the dragon will bite, but a seven or better says it will breathe. Now, they're supposed to be smart. I just kind of think that the dragon will do what's tactically best. I'm pretty sure that's what every DM did. Um, number of hit dice is an indication of the size of the creature. Most will fall out in the middle, but about 20% will be small and 20% will be very large. So, the value of the hit dice, as well the value of the breath weapon, will be subject to the maturity of the dragon. So here's where we have the hit dice, but how many points per hit die, like we've done, like in Swords of Wizardry and White Box, which is, well, based on this, that, uh, determine how many hit points it has, despite whatever is in, whatever the hit dice are. Alright, so let's see. Special characteristics. This is going to be good, because there's been some crazy shit in the, in the little brown books. Let's see if anything neat falls out of this. White dragons will be found only in cold regions. Black dragons will be only found in swamps and marshes. The dragon can, can talk. There's a 5% chance it can use magic. First level only. Green dragons frequent woods and forests. If it can talk, there's a 10% chance it can use magic. First and second level spells. Blue dragons are in deserts and arid lands. There's a 15% chance of a talking blue dragon having spells. Red dragons, mountains and hills. And a 50% chance of using magic spells first. And golden dragons are able to abide anywhere as they're actually a class unto themselves. These monsters are by far the most intelligent of all their kind, and they're able to use magic. They can employ spells up to 6th level, gaining 1 level for each of their stages of maturity, having 1 spell for each hit die they have. Golden drags, dragons are the only dragons which are lawful in nature, although this exception is not noted in the alignment table. They will often appear as humans or in some other disguise. Or guys, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm editorializing. Get over it. They will not usually serve any character. Attacking characters. Um, wow, you get a plus two to, uh, plus two to hit a sleeping dragon. Um. Certain weapons, do more against dragons, blah, 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 blah. Attack by, what the hell is this? Um, I have no idea what this freaking chart does. Dragon type, white, grackling, red. Attack by water. Oh, whether it's being attacked by an earth element, like elementals and lightning, whether it gets a bonus to attack. Subduni, subduing, sub, sub, yeah. Um, what am I, subtitling a dragon. No, um, no, it's subduing a dragon, I'm sorry. Any attack may be to subdue rather than kill, but this 
Intent must be announced before the melee begins. With intent to subdue is announced, hits scored upon the dragon are counted as subduing rather than killing points. Each round of melee, the number of points scored in hits is ratio to the total of the number of the dragon has a hit point total. This hit obtains being stated as a percentile of the total possible. This percentile, the percentile dice are then rolled to determine if the dragon has been subdued. Roll equal to or less than the percentage of hits already obtained means the dragon has been subdued. And here's a long paragraph about math. <coughs> now here's the neat part. So you got a subdued dragon. What do you do? You sell it because let's see on the open market. There's an open market for frickin' dragons. Um, from 500,000 gold pieces per hit point. Thus, a red dragon in the above example could be worth 33,000 to 66,000 gold pieces. You don't loot the treasure out of the... So, so this is one case where the monster is the treasure. Cool! But not that easy. Officer determined by the referee meme. We're going to six sided dice to see if anyone will offer anything. Alright, okay. Uh, length of subdued... As soon as it has a chance to get away and kill somebody, it will, and it will probably come out looking for you. Two or more dragons. If two or more dragons are encountered, they will be a pair. That is going to be good. If three or four dragons are encountered, they will constitute a family group. Oh, boy. <coughs> so, yeah, that could get real ugly. Sorry about the cough there. And dragon treasure. They have lots of freaking treasure. Uh, I mean, there's a short sentence, but I'm not going to read it to you. But that's, that's the most interesting thing there. It's like, wow, I forgot about it. You know, I remember subduing dragons, but I didn't remember how much you could get for the dang thing. Okay, I have rambled on long enough because I think this is about the longest episode I have ever done. Okay, so you know the drill. Hey, follow us on Facebook at They Might Be Gazebos. Visit the blog at They Might Be Gazebos. That's the letter B, not B-E. It's the letter B. They Might Be Gazebos dot blog. Hey, and you know what? Roll dice, kill monsters, take their stuff. Have fun, people. All right. Let's have great gaming week, folks. Thank you.